Welcome to Voicebox, your weekly guide on public radio and podcast to the art of the human voice and the best of the vocal music scene. I'm Chloe Veltman, and it's delightful to be here with you once again. The history of America has been documented in many ways, most obviously in books, essays and films. But to what extent is it possible to chart the narrative of this country through song? To help answer this question, I'm lucky to be joined today via Skype from Switzerland by Thomas Hampson, an American baritone of international renown. Besides performing recitals and leading operatic roles in the world's greatest concert halls and opera houses, Thomas is a scholar dedicated to exploring the relationship between American song and this nation's history and culture. Hello, Thomas. Thanks for joining me today. Hello, it's it's great to join you, and I, I love the miracles of modern technology that make it possible. I know, it's fantastic, <laughs> isn't it? Thanks to Skype. So to your list of accomplishments, Thomas, we should also add that you are a radio host. Please can you give us a brief overview of your new 13-part radio series, Song of America, which is currently being heard by radio audiences across the land? Well, it's exactly what you, you you said earlier in your in your introduction. Um, it's it is uh, a series that is all about looking at uh, American culture, the various aspects of it, epochs of it, the disenfranchised, the much loved, various poets, a lot of issues, but through the eyes of our poets and the ears of our composers. And I suppose the having spent so much time in in uh, German leader and French melody. You know the classic songs that were, and, and of course, singing American songs over the years. It just became clear to me several years ago, you know, ten, fifteen years ago, that American song had a different narrative thrust to it. It has a different impulse that is articulating any particular ten, five, ten, maybe fifteen year segment of American of American cultural history and and looking at our composers in that vein gives them it seems to me a bit more credit quite frankly to their artistic output rather than this endless and i think useless uh comparison of of well is he as good as brahms or <laughs> is you know is that our schubert or you know all that sort of nonsense that that quite frankly we were distracted with you know these arguments for 50 or 60 years so the this has been my thrust behind the song of america project in in general that it has now manifested itself between my foundation and wfmt radio network into a 13 week series is quite frankly a dream come true and and that 175 some stations are carrying it over this this next year uh is more exciting than I can possibly uh, imagine. So I, I hope this narrative of who we are and why we think what we think as Americans and where we've come from and what have been the influences and what what remain the pressures and and the the differences that we have that that build this collective called America. I mean, after all, our our most famous motto of our existence is "E pluribus unum," which is not mm-hmm. homogenization. It is out of the many is one. But that is a spiritual context. It is not a a physical or even geographical context. So can you tell us a bit more about the relationship between this radio series and your multi-platform Song of America project? <laughs> 
Well, in a lot of ways, the, the radio series is, is a hearing manifestation of what you can find on the website. The songofamerica.net website is an interactive database that correlates poetry or poet, composer, and song under a timeline of of events within America. So I think it's a real I wanted to build something that was was useful not for only for people to collect the dots but also quite frankly for younger colleagues or any colleagues to to work within the field of of song in America. Now what this song this 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 song series or this program in um uh, WFMT and on the radio does is is simply add a narrative level to that. Okay. Well, let's get into this question of American song more deeply now. I'm tempted to ask you, Thomas, for your definition of American song, a genre that arguably encompasses works by composers as diverse as Aaron Copeland and Johnny Cash. But you've said in previous interviews that it's something you've never tried to define. Now, why is that? Well, I, but I don't mean to be so coquettish about it. I think that <laughs> the, the you know the, the Aaron Copeland and Johnny Cash are Americans, and they both wrote wonderful songs. Uh, I think where the distinction is not the American part; the distinction is what genre they worked within. And and what I'm trying to be very very careful about and very humble about in some ways is is simply to sim- simply to say what this genre is: classic song in whatever language is this amazing phenomenon of a poem being set to music. Now, there's a lot of wonderful humorous discourse about, you know, whether the words come first and then the music and the music and the words and what happens to the poem and Goethe was uh, probably all upset that Schubert ruined his poetry by putting it to music and all of those (laughs) things are quite interesting. But Mm. in fact, I take a rather more simple um, point of departure here. I think that it's very, to me, it's two unique art forms. It is the language of music in conversation with the art form of poetry. And yes, when they are in concert with one another, it's not that either one of them is destroyed, is that they create a new art form. And this new art form is called song, and certainly classic song. Now, the reason why I hesitate to get too deep into the the argument or question about what is American song is because we have been so phenomenally creative, and there are so many different kinds of songs and different kinds of music that are born of exactly the same desire to tell the story of who we are or what it was like to be alive as an American at any particular time. And that's beautiful, and that's wonderful. And yes, Cole Porter and Stephen Foster and 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 Joplin, uh, you know, and uh, they're all wonderful songwriters and songtellers. My focus of energy is that is that rather miraculous building of a new art form called classic song, which is poetry set to music. So I probably am not going to get terribly involved in Johnny Cash, mm-hmm. where Johnny Cash comes across my radar other than my own personal adoration of the man, and that's that's not said at all comically. I, I think Johnny Cash is one of the greatest singers ever. Uh, he has, in fact, sung, uh, especially when I think of something like Hard Times, he has sung mm-hmm. arrangements from what we can still call part of the classic right. song American songbook. So those those are the kinds of distinctions that I'm that I'm looking at when I look at song in America. Even though my project is called Song of America, a great deal of thought about it really is song in America because I think it needs to be perhaps more objectively looked at than trying to identify something called American song. 
I see. So I'd like to spend the next hour we have together, Thomas, or just under an hour, talking about some of the ways in which poetry and music have come together to paint a fascinating picture of American history. We'll touch upon a few great examples of songs taken from your new radio series that highlight various important events and movements in this country's timeline. We'll chat about what the songs reveal about the past and your personal relationship to the music, as well as the composers and poets who brought the music to life. So let's start by hearing a song that's absolutely absolutely fundamental to your work on the Song of America project. Here's Francis Hopkinson and Thomas Parnell's My Days Have Been So Wondrous Free. My days have been so wondrous free The little birds that fly Careless ease from tree to tree Were but as blessed as I Were but as blessed as I If you've just joined us, welcome. This is Voicebox, and I'm your host, Chloe Veltman. I'm just kicking off a discussion about the relationship between classic song and this country's history with baritone and scholar Thomas Hampson, who's joining me from Switzerland via Skype. We just heard Thomas's rendition of My Days Have Been So Wondrous Free, a song with music by Francis Hopkinson and lyrics by Thomas Parnell. The piano accompaniment was provided by Wolfram Rieger, and the track comes from the second of my guests to Song of America CDs. That's a delightful little song, Thomas. It's also an old one as far as this country's timeline goes. It was composed in 1759. Why is My Days Have Been So Wondrous Free such an important song in terms of what it reveals about American history? Well, there's a, there's a lot of wonderful uh, ways you can um, you can drill down from this song. It, first of all, it was written in 1759, and in 2009, that would have been the 250th anniversary mm-hmm. of something called song in America. Now, there's a couple of wonderful things about Francis Hopkinson. He was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. He was one of the first, uh, then before the official forming of the Supreme Court justices, he would have been equivalent to that. He was a very close friend of, of George Washington, and in fact, he wrote these songs and some violin pieces and sent them to George Washington and asked his opinion and, mm. and wrote a very beautiful letter to George who were very close, which George essentially wrote back and said, you know, lovely, thank, for your, thank you for your letter and your packet, Francis. I've, I've rather got my hands full on the Potomac up here right now, but, <laughs> and, I, and I, can't carry, I can't carry a tune in a bucket, but, you know, I'll take your word for it. Uh, and yes, I do believe you are perhaps the first American uh, with the creative spirit or, or manifestation of that creative spirit on American soil. And it was all very heady and very heady and, and important and noble times for these gentlemen. And 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 in fact, the letter that that Hopkinson wrote was, you know, it wasn't just about identifying himself as I, I was the first one here. He actually went on to say that I I truly hope that this modest effort on my behalf or um, um, that I if I offer as an amateur and, and devoted musician will will be the the beginning of the flowering of a great garden of arts and humanities in this new great land called America. Well, let's turn our attention now to a bard whose songs shed light on an array of historical events and movements, Stephen Foster. (laughs) Foster, who lived from 1826 to 1864, wrote the lyrics and music for around 200 songs in his short lifetime. Some of these songs, like Beautiful Dreamer, Camp Town Races and Jeannie with the Light Brown Hair, are still very famous today. 
Foster was clearly someone who engaged deeply with the events of his day. He just wasn't writing pretty love songs. He demonstrates his anger at the slave trade in the song Nellie Was a Lady, vents his thoughts and feelings about the Civil War in That's What's the Matter, and Willie, We Have Missed You and also mocks the temperance movements with a touch of self-confessional angst in Comrades Fill No Glass for Me. What do you like about performing Stephen Foster's songs? Well, I, I think they're one, they're the ones that are beautiful and the melodies that he did find are, are truly beautiful. There's always something rather melancholy about them, even when they're not trying to be melancholy, which is a curious fact because if I can bore my audience here, uh, there's not one of his over 200 songs that start in the minor key, oh, <laughs> which, is, okay. which is kind of a startling idea. Yeah, even for the really uh, serious songs, he just... Yeah, no, they have their minor major. moments yeah. and he uses modulations of keys sparingly, but nevertheless, sometimes tellingly. Uh, but you know, it, it's 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 rather it's rather rudimentary. I guess I I, I take Stephen Foster in a recital um, carefully and and with a, a, a dose of 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 you know of, of of accent when seasoning a good meal. Um, mm-hmm. They in and of themselves they can very quickly feel like one hallmark card after the other. Oh. but but as a as the, the best of them like Nelly was a lady or. Or uh, the other very famous songs, Beautiful Dreamer. There's a handful that are quite beautiful. Even Comrades, Fill No Glass for Me. I've never, I think these are very beautiful moments. I think they're snapshots. They, they feel like, like both their text and their music are very strong identifiers of a very specific time and, and aesthetic sensibility in our country's history. And that's why I do like to, to keep singing them. Comrades Fill No Glass for me is, uh, I, I don't think there's anything cynical in it. I think that he was, he fought alcohol uh, as, a, as a problem in his life quite some time. And I think he was truly trying to join part of the temperance movement when he would write, he wrote a handful of these kinds of, these kinds of songs. But that's, that's neither here nor there. He was, a, he was, an, amazing, he was an amazing phenomenon. I'm, I'm not sure how interesting a person he was when he gets right down to it, but his ability to write songs and capture a kind of, of a kind of mentality of the, 
of the displacement within American culture at the time, this always sense of longing for some other sense of home that was either come from, lost, or searched for in, in the settling of America in the 1850s, I think is a, is, is a very powerful emotion and a very powerful, uh, as I've said before, identifiers of memory, if you will. You're tuned in to Voicebox. I'm Chloe Veltman and I'm chatting with baritone Thomas Hampson about the connection between American history and American song. Thomas is the host and artistic director of Song of America, a new 13-part radio series exploring the many different sides of classic American songwriting and performance. We just heard my guests' performances of two songs by the great 19th century songwriter Stephen Foster. Nellie Was a Lady, which featured Craig Rottenberg on piano, and Comrades Fill No Glass for Me, with accompaniment provided by Jay Unger on violin, Molly Mason on guitar, and the pianist David Alpha. Thomas, there aren't that many writers of classic song in this country who could write both lyrics and music. It's much more common for composers to set the work of others. Foster is unusual in this respect. Who for you are the greatest poets to inspire composers to write songs within, with a historical context in this country? first and foremost, Walt Whitman, Mm -hmm. Uh, certainly Emily Dickinson. Uh, In the 20th century, we get a host of of very important uh, isolated uh, poets that were often set to to music, um, whether that be Edgar Allington Robinson or Robert Frost or Wallace Stevens. And they all have their own particular thrust uh, poetically that that is either met or not met by a composer. Not every song that, that is created is, of course, successful. And that's another reason why I found myself drawn to these to these time frames in American history versus trying to identify the person who got mm-hmm. it right, as it were. Because, one, there's so much cross-generational dialogue between composer and, and poet. What I mean is a lot of 20th century composers setting a lot of 19th century poetry. Um, and, and, I, and I think that that's a very interesting phenomenon within the, the American phenomenon, if you will. It seems like a lot of composers were particularly interested in Walt Whitman. He continues to be a huge source of inf- inspiration to composers. Why are composers so drawn to his poetry? I think there's a couple of reasons. Technically speaking and just generally speaking, what Walt Whitman did to the English language, especially the American English language was quite, and poetic language, was quite extraordinary. He released it from rhythmic bounds, which uh, exacerbated the arguments that he had. he was not writing poetry. But I think pretty much people quite quite got on that he had kind of launched a new kind of poetry and a new kind of poetic narrative, if you will. Uh, and that, of course, is much more conducive to musical settings because mm-hmm. there is a kind of metamorphosis and, 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 and living, breathing uh, element to music that is non-strophic. The best of, of the best of Whitman songs always remain Whitman songs, and and that narrative thrust, or even the structure of how the poem's written. Now, you know, we could spend the whole time just talking about Whitman, uh, and I and I'd love to come back and, and do that. Mm-hmm. But the the influence on music as well as from music in Whitman's poetry is, I think, well, it's identified and is talked about, but it's to me one of the most interesting and, and rich understanding of, of, of how Whitman structured his poetry, even that poetry that didn't get set to music. 
Well, I'd like to play a couple of musical settings of words by Walt Whitman that focus in on the Civil War. First, we'll hear tonight's guest, Thomas Hampson, sing Charles Naginsky's setting of the haunting poem Look Down Fair Moon with Craig Rottenberg on piano. And then we'll hear Thomas singing Court Vile's Dirge for Two Veterans, which uses Whitman's text The Last Sunbeam. Dirge for Two Veterans is the third song in Court Vile's song grouping for Walt Whitman's songs. I'm Chloe Veltman and this is Voicebox. I'm chatting with Thomas Hampson, the renowned baritone and the force behind the Song of America project, an in-depth web resource, concert series and now 13-part radio show devoted to mining the development and power of American classic song. On tonight's show, we're specifically looking at the way in which classic songs tell us about the history of America. The two tracks we just heard, Look Down Fair Moon and Dirge for Two Veterans, were both based on texts by Walt Whitman. Now, both of these songs talk about the moon, but they're quite different in terms of how they use the moon to shed light on the harsh realities of war. Look Down is almost haiku-like in its brevity and impressionistic atmosphere, whereas Dirge tells a much fuller story. It paints a potent picture of a dramatic scene. Thomas, what do we learn about the Civil War from these two quite different poems and musical settings? Well, that's that's a very interesting uh, question because I think Whitman transcends the Civil War and goes to the whole notion of aggression and war in general very quickly. Several songs, several of his songs, we can identify the deplorable contexts of the Civil War. Um, There are other poems, uh, and and Ned Roram said some beautiful poems actually in protest of the Vietnam War using, using Walt Whitman's texts. And and that's kind of the dialogue I'm talking to talking about. But there's also direct references in there. I mean, any 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 direct battle reference or any direct 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 relation to a historical event within the you know whether it's Fredericksburg or Gettysburg or any mm-hmm. out or Lincoln, you know, and whatever that became either as a fact or as a metaphor in Whitman's poetry draws us closer to to never forgetting what the Civil War was about. And and I think that's. I think that's very important. I think Weil, Kurt Weil, was was deeply inspired by his his wartime experience, his hatred of fascism, mm-hmm. his 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 total belief and and gratefulness for democracy and for America, and his recognition of 
of, quite frankly, still social issues and social contexts in his newfound homeland America that needed to be addressed. Kurt Weill, whether he was whether he was in Germany or in America, was was always completely attuned to the social aspects of life around him. And and the Walt Whitman poems are just are just part of that genre. He, his other settings of Langston Hughes uh, show even an, even a more acute focus on sociological issues of the day. Great, great composer. Well, and there are other composers too, like George Crumb, for example, who've, who've done this thing of, of taking words or ideas that were created in a previous era and then using those words to voice their own anger or, or just general opinion about current events in their own day. Um, what can you tell us about George Crumb? Well, I think I'm glad you referenced that. I, uh, John, George Crumb, um, I cannot say enough about this man or or his his musical imagination, his sense of musical sound, and and all of that. What that means is just to me absolutely extraordinary. This is Voicebox, and I'm your host, Chloe Veltman. I'm discussing the relationship between classic song and this country's history with baritone scholar and radio host Thomas Hampson. That track, a setting of the old Civil War song When Johnny Comes Marching Home by Patrick Sarsfield Gilmore, was composed in 2004 by George Crumb and performed in this iteration by Thomas Hampson. In addition, the song features amplified piano and a quartet of percussionists. So I'd like to turn our attention now to the question of what happened when old texts get reappropriated by composers in such a way as to take on a whole new historical significance. Let's mm-hmm. take Michael Tilson Thomas's setting of the Walt Whitman text, We Two Boys Clinging Together, for instance. There's definitely an erotic overtone to the words, but the song is in an, obli- in an oblique way about the search for the acceptance of homosexuality. But as set to music in 1996 by Tilson Thomas, who himself is gay, the lyrics send out a much more straightforward message about celebrating single sex relationships that wouldn't have been possible in Whitman's day. Back then, the poem would ostensibly more easily and comfortably have been interpreted as an ode to, I don't know, say, soldierly camaraderie on the battlefield. Thomas, please could you start by reading us the text of the poem? It's quite short. Oh, it's a, it's a wonderful poem. We two boys together clinging, one the other never leaving, up and down the roads going, north and south, excursions making, Power enjoying, elbows stretching, fingers clutching, armed and fearless, eating, drinking, sleeping, loving. No law less than ourselves owning, sailing, soldiering, thieving, threatening, misers, menials, priests alarming, air breathing, water drinking, on the turf or the sea beach, dancing, cities wrenching, ease scorning, statues mocking, feebleness chasing fulfilling our foray. 
Wow, thank you very much for doing that, Thomas. It's beautiful. What does it mean it for... It is a wonderful poem. Yeah, it, it's fantastic. Very powerful. And just the, 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 the words, it seems to... You can kind of feel the tension and the passion in these characters. It's... It's a very sort of gluey, sticky language, too. I love it. It feels clingy. The words feel clingy to me. So um, what does it mean for a composer to set this poem to music today versus in the 19th century? How do you approach singing the song in the light of the same-sex marriage debate of our present time? Well, it's an interesting question. I think it highlights on a, on a, couple, of, a couple of larger issues. One is... is what settings were like in the 19th century. Certainly our aesthetic appreciations and, and our sociological issues like homosexuality, homosexuality over the last hundred years is an issue. And then the appropriateness or the acceptance of someone listening to a song to that kind of text. Starting with that one easier, meaning what I mean is probably this kind of text would have not inspired anybody uh, uh, until our time to, mm-hmm. to set it to, or even to trying to set it to music. Right. In terms of the aesthetic uh, and our or sociological or even religious issues involved, uh, which is, quite frankly, the heartbeat of American culture anyway, no matter how you slice it. Um, clearly, this is a contentious thing. In, in some ways, Michael is celebrating an era that we have finally reached, an enlightenment that we have finally embraced uh, in, in uh, society. But I think what I'd rather focus on is and I hope I don't offend anybody by this comment, but to me, the importance of Walt Whitman is far beyond the fact that he was a homosexual Mm -hmm. or was trying to write in some ways poetry that would embrace or recognize or encourage someone who's who's homosexual to, in fact, think of themselves as a justifiably good person and right person. I think that, you know, poetry of Walt Whitman is just a a take-no-prisoners event. it It is a blatant open dialogue of human issues and human emotions that are right and belong to us and that underscore and identify the dignity of life regardless of your religious beliefs or regardless of how you feel about your sexuality. This is not just about homosexuality. This is about sexuality. This is about talking about human beings as sexual entities. This was what was not possible in the 19th century. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just homosexuality. It was a complete defensiveness to the temporal issues of our body that should be dictated and only mandated by the spiritual essences that one embraced, whether it be Presbyterian or Baptist or Catholic or whatever else that might have been uh, in, in the contemporary context. We seemingly intellectually have moved past this argument, but we quite clearly by the contemporary events of this year and the increasing and and still, or let's say still obvious contention and volatility of opposition to same-sex marriage, not past a, or not able to enter into a truly humanistic dialogue about the value and dignity of life, regardless of your spiritual beliefs or your religion that you have chosen to, in fact, reinforce your spiritual beliefs. Now, I personally, as you can hear me getting wound up about this, think <laughs> that this is a, an anathema to, to the very fundamental freedom of religion and freedom of thought in a secular society called America. This has always been the beauty and thrust and drive of our country to embrace and respect that which we do not 
ourselves embrace. In other words, I can sit at dinner with somebody who lives a life that I would never choose for myself, but that is not my business. That is not my problem. Clearly, we have a different and have to reestablish and maintain a different social contract that would keep us hopefully off the edges of hostility and, and aggression. But the idea that someone lives next to me in a neighborhood uh, as a homosexual couple, and I myself or whoever I'm talking about would not choose that for myself, has, has no relevance in the political dialogue as far as I'm concerned. It should be part and embracing the part of what we understand as the dignity of the difference of life. And so I think Walt Whitman is always going to be a part of that, of that discourse. He is always going to be emblematic of confronting people with their very belief system, their spiritual essences, their metaphysical drives within themselves, their instinctual drives, their relationship to aggression, their understanding of government, their understanding of human nature, the respect and embracing of those either they don't agree with or in fact very common to themselves. That's why it's called the leaves of grass because it's as, we are as myriad as the fields of grass around us. We are all different. We all have different fingerprints. We all have different makeups and yet we live in a field together as grass. We have our own stories and yet we are humanity together. We have as much collective as we have separate and this is something that, that drives Walt Whitman's poetry in a, in a language and a beauty that has never been surpassed and, and quite frankly is a benchmark for those striving to, to articulate it. Well, let's listen to tonight's guest, Thomas Hampson, singing We Two Boys Together Clinging, the third and final song of Michael Tilson Thomas's Whitman's songs. The piano accompaniment is provided by Craig Ruttenberg. We two boys together clinging on the other never leaving up and down the road going north and south excursions We Two Boys Together Clinging, a setting by Michael Tilson Thomas of a text by Walt Whitman, sung by tonight's guest, Thomas Hampson. The pianist was Craig Ruttenberg. I'm Chloe Veltman and you're listening to Voice Box, a weekly exploration on public radio and podcast of the art of song and the best of the vocal music scene. Tonight, Thomas Hampson and I are exploring the question of how the history of America can be revealed through song. Thomas, what, in your opinion, are some of the limitations of song as a vehicle for expressing thoughts, facts and feelings about historical events? Well, that's very interesting. I never thought about that in, in that context. But clearly, when you write a song or you take a poem that's on a particular event and you set it to music, you're exploring pretty much an, a, a, an isolated event or isolated events that may relate to one another. But yet, for a, for a common moment of that storytelling. Now, that, that seems like a limitation, but actually that's the, the genius and joy of, of ballad narration or of, of storytelling. But, but I suppose if you want to look at it as a, as a limitation, um, you can have single songs and poems that are identifiers of particular times and particular contexts, but in fact, to understand the context, it's going to throw you into a larger question of something of a larger narrative. Songs can seem operatic or like little opera in of themselves, but in fact, 
you know, they're not. They're not theatrical. Mm-hmm. There's not a there's not a story. There's not excuse me. There's not a, a timeline inherent. They are snapshots of a larger time frame. Right. I, I'm not sure that's a limitation, but that's how I would define it. What about songs like Shenandoah that have several possible historical interpretations? What are the different historical interpretations that have been brought to bear on that song? I love the song, and and, mm. and yes, it does have twenty six verses, and yes, it it is about a trapper, and 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 then the daughter of the Indian chief, who's also named Shenandoah, and it means stars and skies and freedom, and you know, it, what's curious is that Shenandoah always is related to its melody, and it seems to me that no matter what we do in terms of quote unquote interpretation, mm-hmm. that the thrust of this song and the melancholy or or memory process that we're all invited to, or just simply the the feel good factor of this song is always related to its musical event, which is, you know, in some way uh, convolutedly of, of simply talking about the joy of song. Sometimes we're thrust into our imagination and sometimes we're thrust into our, our emotion. Sometimes we just simply like the sound of it and couldn't mm-hmm. care less what the interpretation of it is. And, and that's something like Shenandoah is, mm-hmm. is, a, little bit, is a little bit like that. Uh, and Shenandoah is just truly one of the most beautiful songs. It's also on international audiences, one of the one of the great melodies out of America that everybody knows. Right. Well, we're going to hear your interpretation of Shenandoah a little bit later, Thomas. But before great. we get to that, I'd like to digress just slightly and talk about the history of American song itself. You, we touched upon this just very briefly near the start of the show. But how has American song achieved a distinct identity separate from the art songs of Europe, say? <laughs> Well, I, for, first and foremost, they didn't for several years because everybody was trying to find out the comparison to Brahms or the comparison to Schubert or the or the or the stylistic comparison in American composers or what is the American language uh, of their own that that can be compared to the essence of great songwriting uh, in in England or in, in, in America. And I, and and again, that's kind of after much you know brain teasing and and searching and soul searching about this. Why I. I came up and became convinced for myself that that it really is a, a different need to tell a story from America than even even in our our English cousins or Anglo-Saxon cousins, much less the the known, heavily stylized and written about genre of German song. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I and I think that I think this this always looking for something behind the curtain in an American song that I that comes from America becoming America is is a very healthy way to look at our songs. You can't you don't necessarily need to do that with some of the great songs of Schubert. It's a much more it's a much more um intimate relationship to poetry is perhaps even a much more, if I use the word again, stylized, artistic endeavor of poetry to song and narrative harmonics, melody that that has a a different raison d'etre in and of itself than necessary storytelling. I happen to think that storytelling, or when I say storytelling, I mean just simply understanding a historical context, would do us well looking at Schumann's songs. We should never forget that Schumann was alive and well and a mature man in 1848, which is one of the great watersheds of shifts of, of thought in 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 uh, middle central Europe. So I, th- I think we can never underestimate the connection that poetry and and music has to the real events of any particular epoch or culture. But certainly that is very true in I think an American song. Who are you, dusky woman, so ancient, hardly human? With your woolly white and turbaned head and purple feet. 
This is Voicebox, and that was Thomas Hampson and Craig Rottenberg with Ethiopia Saluting the Colours, a song with music by Henry Burley and words by Walt Whitman. What a lot of people don't realise about Burley was, was not only his wonderful relationship to Dvorak and, and writing of um, and his arrangements, very famous arrangements of Negro spirituals over the years, but that he also set many, many songs of of even contemporary poets, including uh, Cristino Rossetti and Daniel mm-hmm. Gabriel Rossetti. Uh, so he, he was passionate about the form of, of song in and of itself. Um, what, what I think is just marvelous in this Ethiopia saluting the cover, colors, covers, colors mm-hmm. is one, his obvious uh, love of Wagner, <laughs> yeah. but his also t- taking a couple of, 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 uh, tunes that people would have known, like Marching Down to Georgia, uh, as well as Mary Has a Little Lamb, Little Mm -hmm. Lamb, Little Lamb, which are the same tune source for both of those issues. And then taking this whole recitative aria ballad structure that Walt Whitman himself speaks of when he talks about how he wrote poetry and putting it into a musical language and context, which this is. This is a scene with recitative and aria and a couple of different personalities involved in it. It's, It's an ingenious piece of music and and all of it born out of a real life experience of this poor bloke slaving and slapping his way down in the regiment uh, through the south on what would seem to be a way to stop the Confederacy, and yet he's going past one African-American family and the other that are saluting them, that are encouraging them, and that was part of the political irony slash tragedy uh, for a lot of the soon-to-be-freed slaves in the South by Sherman's famous March to the Sea. But again, that's another radio program. (laughs) (laughs) Thomas, what kinds of things do you think audiences in the future will be able to tell about our current period of American history from the types of songs that are being composed in this country today? I think they'll be able to tell a lot. And and I'm happy to report that that, uh, there are so many wonderful young composers and even not not so young like my age <laughs> that are still that are writing beautiful beautiful poetry and and are beautiful songs and and quite frankly both on contemporary contemporary poets of our time but also also still reaching back to the great sources of Melville and Dickinson and Whitman and and many other many other sources so i mean song is is very much alive and well and i think that the I think perhaps that what future audiences will tell about our time now is that we are deeply, passionately in the arts concerned about the moral compass, about true freedom, true freedom of expression, and perhaps even even drilling farther down into our own personal passions and an ability to express those passions inspired by somebody like our gross papa, Walt Whitman. And I, I think there's a, I think there are, there's a, I think there's a very, very healthy future in store for us because our contemporary world of song and poetry is so alive and so well. Well, it's sadly getting close to the top of the hour and we needs must say goodbye. But I'd like to say a very special thank you to tonight's guest, Thomas Hampson, for taking time out of his hectic rehearsal and performance schedule to chat with me. Thanks, Thomas. It's been a great pleasure. 
It's been my pleasure, and I very much thank you for the opportunity to speak to one of my great passions, which is poetry and music. To find out more about Thomas Hampson's Song of America project, please visit songofamerica.net. You can tune into Thomas's public radio series all about American song, Song of America, starting on January the 2nd, 2012, when the 13-part series will appear on KALW's airwaves on Mondays at 9pm. Lots of other stations around the country are already syndicating the series. Voicebox is an independently produced non-profit project recorded at the studios of KALW in San Francisco. Special thanks to Christopher Dingstad and Christy Finn for their help with making this program possible. And thanks to Jack Wang at KZSU 90.1 FM Stanford for his help with the recording end of things. Voicebox's series producer is Seth Samuel and the web editor is Victoria Lim. Voicebox needs your support. To find out how you can make a tax-deductible donation to keep us on the air, please visit our website at voicebox-media.org. Check out our free weekly podcast on iTunes and also visit our homepage at voicebox-media.org to mull over and respond to the question of the week. And we love to know what you think of us, so please friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. And you can also write to us anytime at info at voicebox-media.org or call us with your comments and questions. The number's 415-841-4121, extension 3515. Once again, that's 415-841-4121, extension 3515. I'd like to play us out with Thomas Hampson's haunting version of the traditional song Shenandoah, arranged by Roger Ames. The pianist is Armand Gutzelimian. Have a songful week. Oh, Shenandoah.